You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Of disputes. Today we are looking at the dispute that took place between Rabbi Yaakov Emden and Rabbi Yonasan Ibishitz. Um, and uh, th- this comes down to the discussion of w- w- the after effects of the Sabbatean movement. So let's look at this from a historical perspective. Let's take some time. And I have to tell you that I'm going to tell this story of this dispute the way that I have received this story and the way that I have learned to, to understand this story. If you will look in other books, if you will look in other sources, you will see a different story. But so even if I'm just going to tell it, sometimes I'll mention what the others say, but here's the story as I understand it. In order to understand what happened in this big fight, it was a fight between Rabbi Yaakov Emden and Rabbi Yonis and Ibshitz, both of whom um, were in the 1700s. They were both leading rabbis. They both knew the entire Torah. And yet somehow they got into this fight. So here's the story. In, in the middle of the 17th century, that means in the 16th, 1600s, the Jewish people were already dispersed throughout the world. Remember, 1492 was when the Jews were expelled from Spain, and there they went all across Europe. Um, Jews moved to Italy, Jews moved to Greece, Jews moved to Turkey, Jews moved to the land of Israel, um, Jews moved to North Africa. Again, these were all in these areas. But also, um, the Jews were living in Northern Europe, in Germany and in Poland, and these were thriving communities. These were, these were very much thriving communities. The, in, in the, in the, in a, sometime in the middle of the 1600s, it was decided, um, let me, let me try this from a different perspective. One of the issues that the Jews were living with at this time was the concept of Mashiach, but that Mashiach is imminent. He's going to come any day. This was driven by a lot of the Kabbalistic fervor which came as a result of the um, Kabbalah movement which picked up a lot of steam in the 1500s. The Ari HaKadosh, the Holy Arizal, the greatest of the Mekubalim, he, um, after, after he came into the world and the, the Torah of Kabbalah, of mysticism, spread, and with mysticism came Messianism, which is the approach that um, Mashiach is going to come any day now, and we have to do things to make him come. And they believed, the Jews at the time believed, that Mashiach will be coming any day now, And then they started to tell themselves that there is a magic year that Mashiach is going to come. And that's 1648. 1648 is a magical um, year. Why? Because 1648 is, in the Hebrew calendar, is the year 5408... Um, which is the, the year of 
408. So, so for some reason, for, yeah, for some reason, they believe that the year 1648 is the year of Zot. It's um, the, because the Torah tells us that um, when in Parshat Acharemot it tells us Bezot Yavo Aharon, Bezot Zion Aleph Tav, which is 408. So the year 5408, which was 1648, is the year of Zot. So Bezot Yavo Aharon in 1648, the Beit Hamikdash is going to be rebuilt. That's what they believed. So. It turns out, 1648 did become a very, very big year, but not for good reasons, but for very bad reasons. Chalnitsky and his Cossacks drove through Poland and wiped out um, the, a great portion of Polish Jewry, and not just, but in the most cruel and horrible way. And instead of it being the year of the Geula, which is what people were expecting. It became the year of desolation and destruction. And this continued for a long time. Chalnitsky and, his, and, and uh, all of his comrades and all the treacherous things that they did, uh, just horrible things. For example, they, in some communities, they locked all the, Jew, the Jews in the synagogue and they lit it on fire. It's just crazy, crazy stuff that, that they did. And this left the Jews, after the desolation of the Jews of Poland, it's it, it, one of the issues that we're going to try to... Um, one of the issues that we have to uh, um, think about when we think about subjects like, let's say, the Holocaust. So, um, people make the mistake of thinking that the Holocaust is a one-time event of human beings acting in such a horrible way towards each other. But for us, for the Jewish people, we've seen this story many times over. And the massacres of 1648, the Chalnitsky massacres, are, are an example of that. According to one count, we lost more than a half a million Jews, which in the 1600s was a, a great significant portion of, the, of, the, of Polish Jewry. This left the Jewish people in a, in a very dark place. In a very dark place. And this would lead to an even greater tragedy than all of that, which is the tragedy of Shabtai Tzvi. Because the people were so convinced that, that 1648 was when Mashiach was supposed to come, that they believed that the massacres and the pogroms are a part of the messianic experience, what we say, the Mulchamot of Gog and Magog, the wars of Gog and Magog, and that on the contrary, the fact that these terrible things happened are a sign that Mashiach is still coming, and he's going to come at any moment. At this time, there was this man called Shabtai Tzvi, who was originally from Turkey. He was a young man who was very charismatic. He was learned, but mostly he was just really good at enchanting people. He was a very enchanting personality, and he was not a good person. I know there have pe been people who have tried to defend him, to explain that, but we don't have to try to defend him. He was a person who was willing to take advantage of the pain 
that the Jewish people were living in and to turn it in for his own benefit. So he started gathering a following and he started doing stuff that was not so okay. For example, in one place he pronounced God's name the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He instead of saying Ado but he actually pronounced the name and they put him in Cher they excommunicated him in, in other places he did other things he did all kinds of terrible things and there are those who excommunicated him they put him in Cherem but for some reason he was still gathering people people were still coming after him because people wanted so much for the redemption we live in a relatively comfortable world but you can't imagine we can't imagine what it's truly like to live in a society where the Jews are oppressed and they can be murdered at, at every turn and so they were willing to accept whatever whatever you know and here comes along this man who some people claim is Mashiach some people say that he has magic powers and so thousands and thousands of Jews believed that Mashiach was here and this is it. This, the, this is it. Mashiach has arrived. So people packed, sold their homes. They packed all their stuff into the back of wagons and they started traveling to Eretz Yisrael because Mashiach is here. Not Mashiach is going to come any minute or Mashiach, at at kumt Mashiach. He's here. The Geula, the redemption, has arrived. And people were so excited. Shabtai Tzvi, of course, was, was loving this. this was, he didn't care who was going to get hurt in the process. This was about him um, you know, gaining the recognition that uh, people refused to give him. And uh, so he, he, he felt vindicated. And this is the way that he's going to... He's gonna, and maybe at some point he himself believed. Maybe he himself believed that he was Mashiach. But um, in the end, it became very clear that he wasn't. He got himself a false prophet, Natan the prophet. And that was his Eliyahu Hanavi, so to speak. And they arrived in, in Eretz Israel. Now, the majority of rabbis, the majority of rabbis in the world declared him to be a fraud and a fake and they said no one should listen to him but as everybody knows who listens to the rabbis anymore people didn't listen to the rabbis then either and they said oh the rabbis they don't know they don't understand he's really holy you know they're they're overly suspicious the rabbis don't want Mashiach to come you know all these and so the general populace went with him what's what's as excited as everyone was, having believed that Mashiach had already come and that this was the Geula, the final redemption, the more excited people become, the more devastating it is when Shabtai Tzvi turns out to be a big giant fraud and everyone realizes it, when he arrives before the, um, the uh, leaders of the uh, Ottoman Empire in front of the Sultan 
and the Sultan says to him, we hear that you claim that you're the Messiah and you're the king of the, um, you're going to be the king of the Jews. And you know, he had made statements like he was going to overthrow the Sultan and take his crown and things like that. So Shabzai Tzvi tried to, at first he tried to deny it. He said, no, I'm just a simple Jew who's here to, to, to collect funds for, for um, poor people, you know, tried to make up excuses. But in the end, his claims had been very public. And so everyone knew that he was, this was Shabzai Tzvi claiming to be the Mashiach. And so the king offered him one of two options. Either you can um, continue to make your claims, and if you continue to make your claims, then we will have to execute you. The other option is if you convert to Islam. And uh, Shabzai Tzvi converted to Islam, which the majority of his followers then immediately left him the vast majority, there were still some people who held on, believing and claiming that this is somehow part of the process, that Mashiach has to convert to Islam in order to bring um, the rest of the world back, some crazy stuff like that, um, which, which Nasan, um, Natan the prophet was uh, trying to promote, but nobody bought it. At that point, everyone just abandoned Shabzai Tzvi, and that was the end of the movement as a true movement. There will always be people who will hold on to any movement. There will always be people who are... And throughout the next um, hundred years or so, there would be another couple of false messiahs and people who would claim that they are the um, um, incarnation. They are the Gilgul of Shabtai Tzvi, that Shabtai Tzvi only did half the job and that somehow they've come back to finish it, but uh, those people also had very little, any um, um, major success. Okay. Why did they, uh, I lost you, why did they itnatsel? Change his... No, itnatsel, it's a slam. It's a slam, okay, why? So why does he convert to Islam? Because he didn't want to die. Instead of dying. Instead of dying, right? Right. So, and that's that's really that's what it comes down to. You know, a person can be living in their even if he believed he was Mashiach. You have to say, well, if you believe you're Mashiach, then you should have been willing to die, right? So, something in his head, he knew he was a fraud the whole time, and that's what that's what we believe, right? At the point where he was like, okay, it's going to cost me my life. You know what? I give up. Yeah, that was the that was the the okay. Now, here's where our story begins. Because at this point, the Jewish people are so depressed as a people. I know that we think of um, the depression that the Jewish people experienced after the Holocaust. We think about it, and we think about the survivors, and what their lives were like, even those who would rebuild would carry the burden of the concentration camps with them all of their lives. It was such a heavy burden that their children felt it. And so the children of Holocaust survivors also suffered. And the children of the children of Holocaust survivors suffered. And that was a a physical catastrophe, or physical and emotional, much more than spiritual. This is different... But it, you can compare it in a certain way. The place that the minds, the emotions of the Jewish people, they were just devastated. That's it, we give up. We give up, that's it. We, we believed after, after 1648 
they believed that Mashiach was going to come and then just 20 years later we have this this horrible incident of, of, uh, of Shabtai Tzvi, it so devastated the Jewish people that they were just, forget it. It's all, it's all, it's... Um, what suffered most, what suffered most was the spirituality of the Jewish people. Because they blamed the story of Shabtai Tzvi on spiritual passion and fervor especially of the Kabbalistic teachings they said that this is all because everyone's studying Kabbalah and everyone's believing all these fantastical ideas and everyone's so um, spiritually um, impassioned and in such a state of, 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 of excitement that people will just believe anything and the most important thing to do, um, what people felt, was to kind of protect themselves. And the Jewish people went into a kind of cocoon, like they like, um, closed themselves off, spiritually speaking. And it leaves for about a hundred years of, of, I want to say, a certain level of coldness. And there were two people, two great rabbis, who were victims who suffered because of this situation more than anyone else. The first was Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, known as the Ramchal. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato was a rabbi in Italy in the 1600s. He was an exceptional, an exceptional genius beyond the people of his generation, even from a very young age. But because... Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato was very young and he was um, teaching Kabbalah, he was studying Kabbalah and he was writing books of Kabbalah. They said, that's it, he is the dangerous one. He's going to be the next Sabbatean. He's going to be the next Shabtai Tzvi. He's, he's young, he's studying Kabbalah, he's teaching all these uh, deep spiritual ideas. And so they attacked him and they shut him down. They stopped him from being able to write his books. They banned him from teaching anything Kabbalistic. They allowed him to write books that are not Kabbalistic. So he wrote the Mesilat Yesharim. Um, the, um, he wrote Derech Hashem. He wrote um, um, you know, a number of other books. But the Kabbalistic teachings that they banned. And this was all because of a great level of paranoia that they had about anyone who was different, um, especially in the spiritual realm of teaching Kabbalah, because again, they felt that Kabbalah is a double-edged sword. If, if you use it properly, it will bring you to great spiritual heights. If you don't use it properly, it will make you crazy and believe crazy things. So they said, because of the, because of the story, they said we would rather that we have no mukubalim than that we should have mukubalim with crazy people. That was the choice that they made. And, and it lasted for a pretty long time. This would not really change until the Baal Shem Tov would come along in the 1700s and in the yeshiva world, the Vilna Gaon, which is a whole, a whole separate story. The second victim of this situation. Complicated life. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really incredible what, um, what, what, what life was like. And I think about it for the average person, mm-hmm. but then what it was like for the people who are the leaders of the community. So, um, the second victim 
of this um, difficult situation was... Excuse me, I yes. just came back from there is the inauguration now on TV of the Israeli new president. Yes. And he was talking about Israelis, that we need to put them together and believe in each other and not fight and not curse and yes. not be bad and not... not yeah, I'm not just going to repeat what you're saying for, for those who are listening. Um, what you're saying is that, um, is that uh, right now what's needed is for the Jewish people to come together. Yes. Yeah, so not in the Knesset. They yeah. do not come well, together. That's, that's it. Terrible. Well, he was talking. He was we're we're going to come back to this point because that's, that's part of what happens here in this no. story is, is the, the Jewish people not able to get along. Yeah. So let's go to the story then well, hopefully we'll have time to discuss it. Yeah. Um, one of the greatest rabbis of the 18th century, certainly um, I once heard him described as the most brilliant rabbi of his generation. Now to say that is a pretty big statement because there were a number of great rabbis who lived at the same time as him, but that's Rabbi Yonas and Ibeshitz. Rabbi Yonas and Ibeshitz was um, he was a rabbi in Prague, and then he was in, in, in uh, Germany, or at least what's now Germany. At that point, you know, things belonged to different... Uh, but Rabbi Yonason was one of the leading rabbis of the time, and also a great Mekubal. At the same time, there lived in Germany another rabbi called Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Now, Ra- Rabbi Yaakov Emden was the son of... Um, of of the Chacham Tzvi, who was a rabbi in Amsterdam at the time of the Shabzai Tzvi incident and following afterwards. He was the rabbi in Amsterdam. And so the Chacham Tzvi, the father of Rabbi Yaakov Emden, was what we would call today a Sabbatean hunter. You know, like in the legends, they have vampire hunters. So he was a Sabbatean hunter. He was the he, was the, um, he would go around the Chacham Tzvi to make sure that all the groups of the remnants of the, of the Shabtai Tzvi Niks, the people who follow Shabtai Tzvi, he, um, he went looking for them and uh, removed them from the Jewish community. That was part of his role in the world because the Sabbateans continued, again, a lot of crazy people continued to believe afterwards that Shabzai Tzvi is still coming back, that he's still Mashiach, and so um, um, the Chacham Tzvi had to uproot, there were a number of other rabbis who took this as their, their job to try to protect the Jewish people from the remnants of the Sabbatean movement, but the Chacham Tzvi's son, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, also saw this as his role. Now the story, the way the story is told, is that when Rabbi Yonas and Ibishitz came to Germany to be a rabbi, the women came to him that they were having difficulties during childbirth, there were some miscarriages, there were some things like that. And so Rabbi Yonas and Ibishitz gave them kemeot, which are amulets. Now, exactly how amulets work is beyond the topic of our discussion. But basically, within the system of Kabbalah, there are certain powerful prayers and intentions and images and words and verses that you can inscribe into parchment. And if, you, if the woman, or whoever you give this to, carries it around her neck, or however it's prescribed to be done... If it's, if it's uh, done correctly, then this um, creates a protection 
a shmirah against evil harm. Now, sometimes it can be a protection against demons, against shedim, and sometimes it's protection against other evil forces. But this is not something that was invented in, in, uh, in the last thousand years. The Talmud mentions this. The Talmud mentions there's a discussion, a, a complicated discussion, but a discussion in the Talmud about whether you're allowed to go into a public domain on Shabbat with, with wearing an amulet. Because you can't carry in the public domain, but what about amulets? Because things which are clothing or jewelry, you're allowed to wear. Things which are only for functional purposes, um, you know, you're not supposed to wear. But then you have things that are in between, like let's say eyeglasses or a watch or things like that. Are, is that considered hotza'a carrying or not? So in most cases it's permitted, but only if it's a functional amulet. Right? Meaning only if it's a proper amulet. And so the Talmud discusses how do you know when it is um, proper, when it's not proper. So this is an old concept. But the Mekubalim, they were experts in writing these amulets. Yes? I wanted to ask, even today, when you are in Yerushalayim, you get red threads that will protect oh, yeah, you. Or this... Tells them Kiddush rivers from heaven that will cause you health. Are those considered kmeot? Right. So the, happens the, today. Yeah. So I want to differentiate between kmeot and segulot. Right. So segulot. In, is a much more general term which includes everything so segulot can be for example if you uh, say certain things in certain parts of prayer so at certain times during your davening you can ask for certain things or you can or, or even um, there are people who have a segula they put certain things on the wall they carry certain things in their pocket um, or, or people who, who say certain things that, that, that's all in within the general category of segulot, which maybe we have to have a separate class on the, on the subject of segulot. Within the realm of segulot, there's kemeot. Kemeot are specifically parchments, pieces of parchment with writing on it. And these are powerful forms of writing which are meant to be either a protection or a segula. And there are, there are stories that are told uh, even today. Even today, I know people who told me, you know, I, didn't believe, I don't believe these things, none of these things, this, until this and this happened, and now I believe. Okay, now, talk to those people, you don't have to debate with me, debate with them. Um, however, the concept of kmeot and segulot still exists today. Yes. Again, maybe that's an, another subject of discussion. But the Rabbi Yonis and Ibeshitz, yeah, so the same thing with, with right, the red threads, that's more within the category of segulot, and um, I should yeah. say, even within, it does not mean that every red thread is a red thread. Yeah. Whatever, that's yeah. a... I, I, I'll say it this way. Whether you believe in Sigulot or you don't believe in Sigulot, even the people who do believe will tell you that half of what's out there is just people trying to sell you red strings. Oh, right? So that's... that's uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, in Yeah, yeah. That's, there are some that have this authentic process, but then there's just people trying to sell you red threads. Right? That's, uh, yeah. right. how, how, how do we become suckers for that? 
Well, some people uh, are. You I, know. Am. I am. You are. I'm, I'm not. Not in everything, but the Talmud tells us that in, in the days of the of the Talmud, there were people who were producing a dye called Kala Ilan. Kala Ilan is fake techelet. In, in Israel, in the land of Eretz Yisrael, there were people who were producing, in the days of, uh, of the Talmud, yeah. who were producing fake techelet. There will always be charlatans, there will always be con men, there will always be thieves, and you know that's part of the Shabzai Tzvi story, is that there will always be someone who's willing to take advantage of, of the people. Yeah. And so, what happened was, th- we're not exactly clear exactly how it went down, but Rabbi Yaakov Emden was shown a Kmeah, or a number of them, that were written, supposedly, by Rabbi Yonas Anabshitz. And in it, he saw hints that, that, um, that Rabbi Yonas Anabshitz was a sa- secret Sabbatean, that he was a follower of, Shab- of Shabtai Tzvi. So he made these claims about Rabbi Yonas Naibshitz that he is a Shabtai Tzvinik. And so he put him into Cherem. And then people said it's not true. It's, he's, a, he's a good rabbi. He's, he's innocent of these charges. And so they put the other side into Cherem. And so the other side put this side into Cherem. So they were throwing Cherems at each other. Some say, there are those who say that the concept of Cherem lost all of its power during this dispute because before this oh my goodness you were put into Cherem it was the end of the world people wouldn't talk to you here he's putting him into Cherem they're putting him into Cherem he put the people who put him into Cherem into Cherem and they put the Cherem's Cherem into Cherem everyone was in Cherem and because of that nobody's in Cherem the fighting went back and forth the fighting broke out in the streets in the streets. And this is what happens. It's unfortunate, but this is what happens. Rabbi Yaakov Emden believed that Shabzai Tzvi was a, was a, Shabzai, uh, that Rabbi Yonis Naibshitz was a follower of Shabzai Tzvi. Rabbi Yonis Naibshitz said, I'm completely innocent, I don't know what you want from me. And Rabbi, Yonis, Rabbi Yaakov Emden continued to insist, the fight got even more serious, to the point where they started involving the secular authorities. So people called the police, they called the soldiers, they called the kings, they called uh, everyone. The whole world was involved. Jewish communities were torn apart. People um, refused, family members refused to talk to each other. This fight became nasty beyond, beyond nasty. something in our uh, blood? (laughs) Is it something in our blood? That's a good question. It seems that way. You know, our sages tell us our sages tell us that the first Beit HaMikdash was destroyed because of the Gimel Averot Chamurot, Shlosha Averot Chamurot, which are Avod Zara Gilu Arayat and Shvichad right? Idol worship, adultery, and murder. The second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, why? Because Sinat Chinam, baseless hatred. So, the question is, it doesn't make sense. For the, for, the, for the Averot Chamurot, idolatry, adultery, and murder, how long were we in Galut? 70 years. In Bavel, we were in Galut for 70 years. 
for Sinat Chinam, how long are we in Galut? Almost 2,000 years. Right? What's the reason? The reason is because when somebody is Oved Avodah so they don't teach their children to be Oved Avodah necessarily. You know, they let their children find their own path. The same thing with Gilu Arayot, someone who does immoral things. Isn't going to teach their children. Someone who's a murderer isn't necessarily going to teach their children that they should kill. But people who are sinat who are sonechinam, people who hate baselessly, will teach the next generation to hate baselessly. But you know what works even more so than teaching people to hate? Teaching people to hate because you are righteous, because you are holier. What we say is a terrible, terrible joke. But the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot tells us, that if there's a disagreement that's for the sake of heaven, then the disagreement will endure. They say, where each side thinks that they are the Lashem Shemaim, that they are the ones who are right, so such a fight will never end. And that's what happens here. They call in some big Rabbanim. They, they went to the Gaon of Vilna. And they said, can you help us? Can you decide? And the governor of Vilna said, and you know, he looked at the situation, and he said, Rabbi Yonatan Eibschitz is not a follower of Shabtai Tzvi. Can we, you know, can we just settle down? Everyone calm down. But people wouldn't. Now, I want to make a comment. I'm not commenting on anyone here, or anyone on the screen, or anyone, but I am commenting on all the historians who are out there. I, 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 this is going to sound very harsh, but be, bear with me here. If you look in any of the history books, the way they tell the story, and I mean the historians of the 18th century, the historians of the 19th century, the historians of the 20th century, and Bezrat Hashem, hopefully there will be some decent historians of the 21st century. But all of them all of them, when they tell this story, it, it's almost frustrating. All the historians want Rabbi Yonatan Eipschitz to be a follower of Shabtai Tzvi. They have this desire. I don't know what it is, but all of these historians all want him to be a follower of Shabtai Tzvi. And it's, it's, it's strange, because when I read the story, I become frustrated that the followers of Rabbi Yaakov Emden wouldn't let go. Maybe that Rabbi Yaakov Emden wouldn't let go. And believe me, I have studied so much from Rabbi Yaakov Emden from his teachings that I know that he knew the entire Torah. We can't... Not only that, but he was a great Mekubal in his, in his, in his um, Sidur, which he, which he published. There he reveals his knowledge of Halakha, his knowledge of Kabbalah, his knowledge of Jewish history. His comments are in the back of every volume of the Talmud. His, the Rabbi Yaakov Emden was, was great. But something got hold of him. And he accused, in, from my understanding, Rabbi Yonason Avshitz was innocent of all of these charges. Now you'll say to me, but the Rabbi, here you have all these historians who are insisting that they have new evidence, that they found the amulet, that they have some statement. I'm telling you, the evidence that they have would never pass in a court of law. 
the evidence that they would have should never stand up to, to any kind of scrutiny but the world just wants again, think about it so I think that maybe the same bug that affected the followers of Rabbi Yaakov Emden where they wanted Rabbi Yonis and Eibshitz to be a Shabtai Tzvi because you know what that means? that means that we are good at finding who the Shabtai Tzviniks are that's why you want to find someone, you want to catch someone, because then you feel safe. If you catch someone who's committing wrongdoing, then that means that we are safe because we have the mechanisms, we have the means by which to find people. Which then means that anyone who we don't suspect is probably truly innocent. Right? So that desire for control and for knowledge is so powerful that it can lead us to pursue an innocent man. And I believe that's what's happening with these historians. And I'm going to add another layer to, to this. But why am I so convinced Rabbi Yonis and Ipshitz was innocent? How, how do I know? Have I seen all the evidence? If I claim that there's not much evidence one way, how can I know that there's evidence the other way? The answer is, and I'll say it simply, because all these historians have read every single piece of history that they could find about Rabbi Yonis and Ipshitz. Every letter he wrote every statement he made, and every amulet that they can get their hands on. But you know what they didn't learn? His Torah. And, and, and if you learn his Sfarim, where he talks about Mashiach, where he talks about the Gula, where he talks about the Beit HaMikdash, where he talks about the future, where he talks about his understanding of the Torah, I'll tell you, maybe I should feel guilty about this, but when I was reading his, his, his books, from front to back something in the back of my head was also looking maybe there is something maybe we have to see nothing and, and you know do I feel bad that I was looking no because now I could say I was looking and I didn't find it's not there he was not a follower of Shabtai it's the end of story if you look at his Torah and I think that's where a person truly is in their writings, in their books, not some story of someone who overheard something, who, whatever, all this weird, bizarre, um, um, circumstantial evidence. Again, that's, that's my approach, that's why I believe what I believe. But, there's something else. And th- this is another interesting point to, to talk about. If you, if you go into the religious community, when I was a child growing up, no one wanted to talk about this story. No one wanted to explain it to me. No one wanted to tell me what happened. I was always very curious what's going on. No one would write about it in the books. All they would say is, the, the dispute, the famous dispute, the dispute between the Yonis and Ipshus of Yaakov Emden. And I remember being so curious, what's this dispute over? And then later, when I learned what it was about, I said, why, is it so, why was it such a secret? Why is it such a secret what the dispute was over? And the answer seems to be, because here we find ourselves in a very difficult situation. Okay. Basically, what we have here is a situation where we have one of two things. Either one of the greatest figures of the last 300 years is a member of the Shabtai Tzvi cult or one of the greatest rabbis of the last 300 years accused an innocent man of a horrible crime 
and one of these two is certainly one of these two is certainly true which means that it's a stain on us it's a shame on us the Jews that one of these two things happened either one of the great rabbis was secretly a Sabbatean yuck right or, or even worse some rabbi picked on another rabbi one of the greatest rabbis in the world and accused him of things that he didn't deserve which one of these two is worse so, so we're so embarrassed by it and that, that's why when I was a kid no one would talk about the story people don't want to talk about it so from a historical perspective um, it's, it's an interesting story but just to teach our, to tell ourselves this story, it's just one of those things, you know, everyone's done things in their past, everyone has done things in their past, they just don't want to talk about it, no one bring it up, even if other people were there, just don't bring it up, because it's embarrassing. So, this is one of those stories of the Jewish people that's embarrassing to us, and that's why we don't talk about it. The problem is, at least I believe, that because we don't want to talk about it because we're embarrassed of it that's why we're repeating these situations we have today even today when someone does something that's even a little bit off of the standard track for what we consider to be safe he's attacked and condemned this, is, this has been this, this is how it's been and uh, uh, many great people have fallen because of this um, control that people want to have to make sure that everyone's thinking exactly what we're thinking because we're afraid that if people start thinking a little differently then maybe th- th- people will start thinking in ways that are out of control and that scares the Jewish community as, um, a- as a whole and it causes the leaders of the Jewish people to become so frightened that they react and sometimes overreact to anyone who does something a little different. I'm not making a comparison. I'm not making a comparison. I'm just using this as an example. And I'm going to say it again because nobody's going to believe me because everyone's going to think I am making a comparison. But I'm not making a comparison. I'm just giving an example. Someone recently asked me, they said, what's the, what's the story with, uh, with Rabbi Shlomo Kalabach? Right? Everyone knows uh, Shlomo Kalabach? Why were the rabbis so upset with him? Right? They accused him of doing all kinds of horrible things. I said, no, no, they never accused him of doing any, all kinds of horrible things. In fact, no one accused him of doing horrible things. If you, later, when people tried to... The whole thing was twisted out of thing. What he did was, he was doing things that within the Orthodox community was considered outside the box it was considered pushing the boundaries and so they they counted him out it was only after he passed away that they were willing now I know there's some people who believe that there were more serious accusations there were not there never were more serious accusations it's just that the minor deviations from the standard track of orthodox observance were considered by his fellow rabbis in his days to be extreme deviations because they were afraid that it was going to turn all of Judaism into hippie world 
And so they responded with this harsh response, but that's again coming from this fear of where is this going to go if we allow it to, to roll on its own. And on some level, if you recall a long time ago, but we talked about the Hasidic movement and the reaction that the Hasidic movement received. And there, there uh, also there was this strong reaction by the opposition because they felt that this was going to lead into some crazy um, messianic spiritual movement. He was a singer, huh? Yeah. Now, I, I jumped in the middle of uh, the, the history of this class. What was the morale of this, the whole story? What was it about? So, this, uh, this is a very important story for everyone to know. In the end, the two of them never make peace. Their followers remained at odds with each other for generations for generations and on some level on some level this was the probably the worst situation to grow out of this Sabbatean fear there was such fear of the return of Shabzai Tzvi that they banned the study of Kabbalah in many places up until you were a certain age or until you learned a certain number of things they, they, all of these things were instituted because they were so scared of anything Kabbalistic and this exists today it exists today it's almost scary to consider that there are the biggest Rosh Yeshivas in the world have zero zero knowledge of Kabbalah zero meaning where your average standard regular person will have a greater knowledge of Kabbalah than the biggest Rosh Hashiva in the world because they are so scared of this incident and this movement that they've cut themselves off of an entire section of the Torah and according to some it's the most important section of the Torah and they completely cut themselves off from it because that's associated with messianism of the kind that's dangerous Right. Obviously, all religious Jews believe that Mashiach is going to come, but this feeling of expectation of he's going to come at any time, that's all very dangerous stuff if it involves anything Kabbalistic. This is, therefore, a battle that took place between two rabbis 250 years ago, and we're still involved. We, the Jewish people, are still in this fight. It's the same fight over what's okay within Judaism in terms of what are we comfortable with and what are we not comfortable with. Our people are doing things. You know, there's, let's say there's people who are dancing and they're dancing in this kind of way. Is that okay? What about that kind of music? They're introducing this kind of music into the Jewish world. Is that okay? What about those influences and these influences? Everything is treated with suspicion. All because of this event now I, I want to you know we're trying to talk about the dispute the controversy and the history I do want to throw in one legend because if I as I believe Rabbi Yonason of Eibschitz was totally innocent and accused of by Rabbi Yaakov Amden again who really wanted to catch to catch the Shabtai Tzvi of the generation and again by historians today 
who want to want, they want to see the rabbi fall. They want to see that the Orthodox community made a mistake about one of its rabbis. They want I, so much sinat chinam. It's it's. It's, Let's just right? explain what's happening in the Yeah, yeah, but but that, right? But here's a legend. There is a legend that Rabbi Yonason Abshitz was a grandson of Rabbi Nassim Nata Shapiro of Krakow, the great rabbi, the Bala Mukot. The Bala Mukot, um, a story is told about him that when he was young, during around the time of um, the of the massacres around that time, a spirit came to him and said, "I will be your your guide, your spiritual guide." And it was supposed to be a test. It was an evil spirit. A whole long story, which I see I'm not going to have time to go into. And he refused. He said no. And then this spirit then went and helped Shabtai Tzvi succeed in his evil mission. And so we're told that the spirit, even though it was unable to affect Rabbi Nassim Nata Shapiro of Krakow, it was able to affect his grandson, Rabbi Yonason Eibschitz, that he should be accused of Sabbatean association. Now this is the um, explanation that the Hasidim give as to why this would happen to, Shab- to Rabbi Yonason Eibschitz. Basically, what they're trying to say is that he was so holy and so innocent that unless there's some supernatural cause, it's impossible to imagine how it could be that someone so holy and so righteous should be accused of something that's so beyond him. But I want to move away from the legend and I want to turn this accusation against the Jewish people. Is there any validity to this accusation? No, like no. The, it was, yeah, there are people who claim that there's evidence, but as we mentioned before, none of it's real. None of it is really convincing. But like I said, people want. People want. And so this is where we're going to come to... to um, you know, this, this week, Shabbat, will be Rosh Chodesh Av, where we enter into the nine days of the morning of the Churban Beit HaMikdash. But we are mourning the Churban of the Galut. And there is a tradition that on Tisha B'Av, on the 9th of Av, we don't just mourn for the tragedy of the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, which took place almost 2,000 years ago. But we also mourn for the massacres which took place during the Crusades, we, take, we mourn in the Kinot. We have mourning for the Sreifata Talmud when the um, French burned the volumes of the Talmud. We have Kinot for what took place throughout history through the Inquisition and the pogroms and the Holocaust, of course. And it, is the, it has been the approach of religious Jews throughout the centuries that all of these things are commemorated on Tisha B'Av. And the question is, they didn't all happen on Tisha B'Av. The destruction of the Beit HaMikdash took place during the month of Av. But the Crusades, the Crusades didn't take place during Av. The Crusades took place during Nisan and Iyar. That's why uh, during the Yemei Sefirah. Why are we, why are we, um, why do we commemorate it on Tisha B'Av? The answer is 
that the story of the Galut of the Jewish people is not a bunch of isolated incidences. It's one long story. It's one long story of the Jewish people running from place to place and being pursued by our enemies and chased and they want to kill us. Why do they want to kill us? Why, Why do they want to kill us? Okay. Nobody really knows. Nobody really knows. It's been a puzzle for all generations. And I, there are theories, there are ideas. But to really define it, how good people can become evil and cruel people, but one of the things that we are told is that if we would be ba'achdut, if we would be united, no nation would be able to overcome us. And if you think about it, even today, if the Jewish people could, could somehow come together, if all the Jews in the world supported each other, we would be able to protect ourselves in ways that, that we otherwise couldn't. But we're torn apart. Half the Jews are one direction. Whatever, pick, pick any topic in the world. Pick any topic in the world. Any topic in the world. And the Jewish people are basically split 50-50. Unless, uh, unless it's a war in Israel. Even with a war in Israel. I mean, look yeah. what happened to the Jews in America. All of a sudden they turned, they turned on Israel. No, right? Well, yeah, Israel. within the state of Israel. But I think the Jews all over the world... So what we're told is that there will be no gula until there will be achdut. There will be no gula. That's what we're told. That until the Jewish people come together, until we come together, there can't be a gula because you can't have a gula in a state of pirud, in a state of um, you know, where we are divided. And so what comes from a false Mashiach, even though his movement ended, but the fighting and the bitterness that he caused continued on. And if the Holocaust survives generation after generation with a different effect, it's interesting that this is 250 years later and we're still behaving in ways. We, the Jewish people, are behaving in ways from a story that happened 250 years ago. A fight between two individuals is still affecting how the rabbis are making decisions today. That's, that's the power of Sinat Chinam. And, and the only way around it is through Shalom to be Ohev Shalom Verodev Shalom. You know what that means? It means that you have to judge people favorably. We have to stop looking for, looking for Shabtai Tzvi within every Yonatan Ibshitz. We have to stop thinking that every rabbi has evil and cruel intentions. We have to stop thinking that, that every person who I don't agree with is out to destroy the world. Now, without being naive, because there are bad people. Shabtai Tzvi was a bad person. You, you, we have to be careful. But then the person says, well, if I have to be careful, then I have to watch out for everyone. We know there are ways of telling when someone is bad or someone is good. There, there, was, one, there was one great Makubal who went to visit Shabtai Tzvi in, in, in jail. He, he went to see, is he real or is he not? He sat with him for five minutes and said, he's a fake. He's a fraud. And that's it. He went away. We can tell when someone is... is yeah, you can fool some of the people some of the time. Mm -hmm. Right? But you can't fool all of the people. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, right? So th this is something that, that we have to be more aware of and focus more on the shalom aspect. Especially today, what's going on in the world. Could you imagine if 
if we could set all our issues aside. I mean, think of this. You think maybe he's a Sabbatean. You know what? Stay friends with him till you know. You know what? If you see someone is maybe more religious than you, less religious than you, it doesn't mean that we can't be together, right? Okay. Um, any any final thoughts? Yes, tell me. <laughs> so what's the lesson of the story? Why pass it on if it's going to be caused destruction and, and cause the Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.